Welcome back to People Analytics. I'm your host, Lindsay Patton. Today, I have with me Kim Shomian, who is the SVP of People at Mach 49. Welcome, Kim. Thanks, Lindsay. Happy to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you. But before we get into our conversation, tell us who you are, what you do, and why you do it. Great. Yeah, I'm a global HR leader. I've been leading a transformation of the people function using an evidence-based HR approach. Uh, I guess I would call myself an HR skeptic. I spent the first half of my HR career doing HR by the book, and now I've come to be pretty skeptical of much of the advice and programs advocated by HR. I found that a lot of the programs that we advocate don't achieve what they're purported to do. And so I spent the last half of my career rethinking HR practices, learning from other functions like engineering and marketing, think agile, design thinking and the value of data and metrics to apply the same level of rigor to the people function. So most recently, I led the people experience and culture team for a high growth EV startup. Mm -hmm. Most recently, just joined Mach 49, as you said, as the SVP of people as part of our office and people and belonging. Mm -hmm. So Mach 49, in case people are wondering, partners with global businesses to create a pipeline and portfolio of new ventures and investments that disrupt existing markets and create new ones. So I think why I'm here now is I'm really focused on how do we transform the use of talent to deliver a better return on talent employed? How do we align talent supply and demand within a company to ultimately how do we scale labor costs for better use of talent? So I am. Amazing. And a big part of this conversation is going to be about deconstructing work. And so what I am very curious about, you said that you are very by the book, and then a shift happened in your career, uh, where you became that HR skeptic. Tell me about that shift. Yeah, I think it came from uh, a number of, you know, we all get influenced by either the experience that we have or thought leaders in the space. Uh, And like I said, you, you start to realize that some of the things that we're doing, classic example is job descriptions, which is something I've always felt like HR people were supposed to do job descriptions. And there's all these things that we're meant to keep in job descriptions. But the reality is, you know, that you write them, everybody files them away. And then we never look at them again until maybe there's a performance issue. And then we discover that in fact, oh, gosh, this this isn't exactly what the person's been doing all along. Yeah. I would say it really started with this idea of job descriptions and how useless they are mm-hmm. and competency models and like all the work to maintain them. And yet, if you ask me, what's the true value of them? I couldn't say that it helped people have clarity about their work. I couldn't say that it helped people better or leaders better manage performance. And I couldn't say that it helped organize the company better that provided any clarity. So for me, it it kind of started with this thing that I felt was not useful. Mm -hmm. And then it was, okay, if that's not useful, what is useful? So I started on a journey to looking for different ways of managing organizations. Uh, One other thing that I would add is, as any HR professional, I've lived through lots of booms and busts, and I've watched organizations over hire 
only to have to, at the slightest downturn, let a whole bunch of people go. And it's like, there's got to be a better way to do Mm. that. Yeah. And so that's where it all started. And then I've gotten into what might be solutions for that. Yeah. So what does the deconstruction process look like to you, um, your own personal journey? Yeah. So there's a couple of different models to it. Uh, And in fact, Josh Burson just came out with the HR Trends 2023, and he talks about deconstructing into skills, and that's the way of the future. Um, I think that's interesting, uh, but skills is really just the talent supply part of the equation. Uh, There is the talent demand part of the talent supply chain, which is the work that needs to be done for which you need skills. And so the other model that has been advocated by some individuals like John Boudreaux and Michael Grove over at CollabWorks is work as service. So if we if we think about we're in a service economy and as we outsource things and as we um, use uh, kind of uh, RPA um, process, uh, RPA resource process automation, I forget what RPA stands for now, Um, but this idea of deconstructing work into the littlest bits of work that's done, I think that provides the greatest opportunity of if we we deconstruct jobs into the amount of, into the services that the work is doing, who is the customer for that work? And then what is the value of that work within the organization? We basically break down the boundaries of this thing we call a job and instead I kind of think of it like the matrix, you know, when you see all the numbers <laughs> yeah. go down and like all the boundaries disappear between things. And as an organization, you can look across the organization and say, what is all the services being done and how might we either eliminate some of those, uh, automate some of those or regroup work in different ways so that more people can participate in the workplace versus only those who can do a 40 hour or 50 hour, 60 hour chunk of work. So I think it starts with, this idea of services and what is the talent needed for each of those services. That's really interesting because a few guests um, have brought up uh, work and especially work in the people space as being a service. Um, mm-hmm. And I've had a few guests say, you know, I am serving people and how it's such an honor to serve. So it's really cool to see these trends pop up as I interview different people and, you know, to have you view, view, view work as a service as well. It's definitely a very interesting and very um, empowering outlook. Yeah. And I think when you think of work as a service, by definition, a service is in service of someone. Ideally, there is a clear customer of your work. And that becomes one of the first questions of value is if you can't figure out who's benefiting from the work that you're doing, then you might think, hmm, maybe... (laughs) Maybe we're maybe this isn't useful. Uh, I've come into many organizations and due to busyness or whatever, we've said, oh, we can't we can't run that report anymore. And we'll just have to deal with people when they get upset about not getting the report. And yet the number of times that you stop doing something and nobody says anything, you think "Hmm, we've been spending all this time and nobody's benefiting. Nobody cares. Yeah, definitely. So um, I want to touch on, you know, going back to the Industrial Revolution and how 
everything that culminated since has brought us to, you know, this point where it's kind of, you know, okay, well, we got to usher some old ways of doing things out of here. Uh, Because I do feel like we are at a turning point uh, in work right now. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it is this idea uh, when people, when I start talking to people about a different way of doing this, there is this belief that the, the model that we work in sort of works. So it, it people recognize that there are things that are problematic, but they don't realize why the current industrial revolution model was put in place, which was at a time when um, inputs largely equaled outputs. Mm-hmm. So if you wanted to increase output, you just increase more hours into a factory or whatever. Um, it wasn't necessarily knowledge work, and it was a mechanism to deliver predictable returns, right? So if we could standardize jobs, if we could clearly clarify the work that was meant to be done, the workers could do the work and management would have a predictable outcome. Now we're in a situation of knowledge work. We're in a situation, especially since the pandemic, where work can be done anywhere. We've really deconstructed the idea of the organization, but we haven't deconstructed the idea of how work gets done. I think we all get that that something's changed, but you can see with the return to office and the rush back, because we don't have a new model to replace the way leaders observe work getting done, it's still this old model where I, in order for me as a leader to feel comfortable that the work's getting done, I need to see the workers doing the work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do believe that some of this rush back to the office in the name of culture and collaboration is really just leaders don't have the tools to understand what's going on in their organization. Mm-hmm. There's a lack of trust. And quite frankly, they might not like that their Zoom square is the same size yeah. as everyone else's. <laughs> so how do I get some sense of status? Uh, back into the situation. Yeah, I can definitely see it being as grasping for some sort of normalcy or control when everything's topsy-turvy. Exactly. (laughs) Um, So I also want to discuss, um, you know, how issues around diversity and talent mobility um, are able to solve, we're able to solve more of those as we deconstruct work. Yeah, I think this is the root cause of one of the problems that organizations have had, particularly Mm -hmm. attracting women back into the workplace. I've been very committed with how, as somebody who didn't have children, I benefited in my career that I did not have to take a pause or I did not have the challenge of this work-life issue that I think women have. Uh, I've also been fortunate to have a spouse that was willing to pick up more of kind of the household management side of my life. Other women just do not have that luxury. And there are commitments at the beginning of the day, at the end of the day, during the day that cause women to, for a period of time, uh, you know, first five years of a child's life, for example, need to lean out versus lean in. Uh, And then when parents get sick, then you find another moment when you have to deal with elderly parents, uh, and sometimes you're parenting at both ends. Uh, And so there's a need to dial the work down, but not step out of the workplace. And when we define work as a full-time equivalent, which is the way most organizations think about jobs, it, it just feels like this 
impossible thing. You basically give somebody a job description and say, well, just try to do that in 20 hours a week or 30 hours a week. And it sets people up for failure. Um, I think if we were able to deconstruct work into the services idea that, that can scale up and scale down based on the based on how we combine the services together, it does create an opportunity to create uh, a school hours work schedule. And mm-hmm. um, there's some really pe- interesting people in, uh, there's a group in New Zealand that I need to find uh, her name, Ellen Nelson, I think it is, that is really advocating school hours work schedules and how do organizations create those. Plus, we also know there's lots of research to show that uh, you can be actually more productive in a smaller amount of time than what we currently do. So I think getting women back into work with deconstructing jobs and getting away from the 40-hour chunk of a job definition will help us bring more women into work. Also, m- more men who want to spend more time with their families or other groups that are struggling with commutes or uh, different things like that. So. Could you go into a little bit more detail about school hours workforce um, in case there's anyone in our audience that are unfamiliar? Yeah. So the idea of school hours is basically a nine to three type of job. Mm-hmm. So uh, a, a work schedule that allows people to drop kids off and pick them back up and have that be the nature of their job. So it's basically a nine to three, call it five to six hours a day. Uh, if we could have somebody productively employed for 25 to 30 hours a week, there is work that needs to be done. We just need to think differently about how we structure the work. And again, I think part of this is because we only think of work in full-time equivalents that we get stuck with, oh, well, we have to give less meaningful work, or maybe it's administrative work instead of rescoping the work based on the services, the needs uh, that the services that the company needs. And that's something that I've always been frustrated about as a worker is the arbitrary 40, the arbitrary eight. You know, what what are these magic numbers? Um, You know, as a self-employed worker, I find that my best days are usually around six hours. And that's when I'm most productive. Yeah. 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 My husband is a entrepreneur and he manages to run a business and he does it six hours a day and he you know, gets up early and is done by two. And wow. he finds that that is his pro- productive zone. And that allows him to also have a life. So yeah. that's awesome. there's a lot of people who do that. Yeah. <laughs> and we've got like eight hours is the magic number. And I, again, it goes back to industrial revolution days. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, going into our next topic on analytics Analytics can also support that productivity. You know, there could be someone who's just as productive in six hours as someone who is, you know, that adds that extra two hours where they may want to talk with a coworker or go on the Internet or, you know, fill that time. Um, You know, how do analytics help support this deconstruction work that, um, you know, you're doing? I think what we find with it, I think there's this opportunity to more deeply understand the work that people are doing and how they feel about the work and what part of the work is actually operating in their zone of genius or where they're aligned to it. I've started to apply some of these deconstruction principles in my own work environment and find that there is in everyone's day 
there is a meaningful chunk of work that is being done below your level of capability. And it could be because you've kept it from previous jobs that you're still doing this thing that's no longer related to you, or there's just not enough people around to do it. And you end up with very senior, really skilled people doing work all the way down the pace. Whereas if we were really paying to do work in their zone of genius and where they're most capable, we might find that in six, seven hours a day, we could get the the best use of their talent and automate, remove, um, you know, use chat GPT these days to do some basic level things uh, and help people work at um, the level that we're paying them for. Mm -hmm. So I think if we did that all across the organization, that could create some opportunities for scale and optimization of the talent and engagement of people. When you're doing work that is at your level versus below your level, we're just or in the zone, there's more flow state that happens. Yeah. I know that you have experience, you know, with tech and startups. Do you feel that the startup culture of all hands on deck, everyone can do every job kind of encourage that, um, you know, everyone kind of reaching, reaching up, reaching down, reaching side to side? <laughs> Yes, I've just come from a startup and and it is an interesting experience. One, um, what started benefit from is that they don't have the time to do stuff that doesn't matter or or that is low level or isn't immediately adding value. If they're really clear about what they're doing, all the other stuff slips away. Uh, It does create, it's a little bit chaotic as well, but I think that's just the nature of startups. Uh, as you, as an organization matures, there is this risk that happens of low value or non-value added work creating creeping in, mm-hmm. because people kind of have to justify their their existence. Once you have a job, and somebody said you're doing this job, and you may find that there's more and more stuff that you don't really enjoy doing, but you can't really say anything about it, or you're not encouraged to, or you feel like, well, if I tell people I'm spending twenty percent of my time. of my time doing low value ad, they might let me go. So there's like this inherent um, disincentive for people to admit that the work that they're doing might not add value or the reverse is we have a natural incentive to think that the work that we're doing is valuable. Uh, And so that just creates an environment where make work happens and it just happens on a scale when you're in a 10,000 person company and you see it. I mean, not that I advocate what Elon Musk has done at Twitter, but so far he's let half the company go (laughs) and they're still in business. Wow. That is a case study to watch play out in real time, isn't it? We'll see what happens. Right. Um, So one thing that I think is really awesome about you is that you have killed the annual review process in three organizations. So you are anti-annual review. Let's talk about that. Yeah, I, you know, I think there's lots of evidence now uh, that has come out that that Mm -hmm. is a flawed system. When I first started doing it, it was a little bit of the new thing to do, although I still run across companies that are trying to kill the annual performance review. 
And it, it's flawed for a bunch of reasons, back to this idea of what's the evidence that it works? Mm-hmm. And by works is any definition. What's the evidence that it improves the performance of the organization? Can't prove it. What's the evidence that it helps weed out poor performers? Absolutely. Every time I've had a performance issue and I've gone to the performance review, it's not helped the situation yeah. because it's been average to glowing at some times. Uh, it doesn't help uh, increase employee engagement. There's all sorts of research to show that around performance review season, everyone, even your high performers, are anxious. So you think, well, okay. So if you say that it's not worth it in terms of what it's doing, then what do you do to replace it? I would say provocatively, you would be better just not to do anything mm-hmm. instead of doing a performance review first first and foremost. But then secondly, if you want to replace it, what does the evidence show that does work, which is an ongoing, meaningful set of conversations between employees and their leader? When I was at Trimble, we killed the annual review and replaced it. uh, And we didn't replace it with something called the quarterly performance review. We replaced it with a thing that we called tea times. And we company was Trimble, so tea we, we wanted something there. And we like that it could imply golf, like a tea time Aww. or tea, tea time. I like it. And that it's talk time uh, in all sorts of language, actually. Talk starts with a T, mm-hmm. so we found all these. So it was, it was talk time. And we said it was about the things that mattered to employees. And all the evidence shows that what matters to employees is career discussions, um, how they're doing at work, helping them problem solve and troubleshoot, where leaders operate as coach to help employees find their own um, their own solutions. And when we talk about purpose and values and how people are aligned to the purpose and values of the company, all those things are examples that engage employees. So we made it around those topics. And we simply got rid of the rating scale. And I give a ton of credit to David Rock over at the Neuroleadership Institute who helped me arrive at this, which is instead of getting rid of the ratings, we simply moved to an on-track, off-track scale. Mm. Because the research shows you do need to let people know where they stand. Um, But there's limited value to saying you're a three versus you're a four versus you're a five. We basically said if if you're on track, that gives you access to a, a career development conversation, a conversation about your skills and where you want to go, a conversation about you and how satisfied you are as your work. Um, and then we'll go from there. If you're off track, if something is really amiss in your performance or you're fit with the culture, then we're going to talk about that and we're going to spend our time talking about that. And as long as people kind of knew whether you're on track or off track and you knew it once a quarter, it solved people's need for understanding where they stood. And, and, and what we found is people and leaders were more likely to use that kind of off track thing because it wasn't a PIP, a performance improvement plan. It wasn't catastrophic, didn't increase, didn't change their pay increase or anything like that. It was just an early warning that something was off track. And we can move forward. 
uh, implemented the similar thing when I was at Herman Miller uh, and uh, also when I was at uh, this EV startup that I was just at. So it's this idea of an ongoing conversation uh, with a quick check-in on where you stand. And that seems to meet the need of dealing with performance issues, but not disengaging people and telling them they're a number. And I know that you utilize surveys too, to really support data and analytics as well. Could you talk about about that? Yeah, we really wanted to, and this is a key principle of mine, which is if I'm going to introduce a new thing, I'm going to quickly measure the effectiveness of it because I don't want to um, fall into the old pattern before of HR says this thing works and then we can't prove it. Yeah. So when we when we implemented tea times at Trimble, we quickly followed up with a series of surveys um, that we actually did leading up to the tea time because it would give us each quarter we had a specific focus area. So we would have two or three questions that were related to that focus area so that people leaders, they would get their data after, before they had their conversation. So it would be things like, um, where are you at in your career development? Would you like to have a career conversation? What's your next step? We would ask some career questions. And then every quarter we would ask, did you have a tea time discussion last quarter? What was what was it that you talked about in that conversation? How would you rate the quality of the conversation? And then we ask it an ENPS question. And what that allowed us to do was to correlate the frequency of tea time conversations, the topic that they were discussing, because we didn't, we told them to talk about specific topics. But we also knew that sometimes managers were really just giving feedback or managers were just talking about project work and weren't actually talking about the topic. Um, So it allowed us to correlate the employee's view of value based on what was talked about and then correlate that to net promoter score. And what we basically found, not surprisingly, after a couple of years of tracking this, that um, Three or more tea time conversations per year were high, were correlated with a reduction in attrition on the order of like 50% reduction. So we had people, people were more likely, you know, we had a little, into my memory stores here, <laughs> but turnover was something like 15 to 20% if there were no tea time conversations in their first year. It dropped down to 2% if there were three or more. I mean, so it was like a massive change in that. And then the ENPS score um, for people who said the conversation was valuable and they were talking about the topic, like career development, the things that mattered to employees, their ENPS was 69, which in the world of ENPS, over 20 is considered good. Okay. Um, people who tended to talk about project stuff and didn't talk about the career conversation, the EMPS was closer to zero. And then more interestingly, employees who had no tea time conversation, their EMPS score were 12. But if they had a bad conversation, ones that they said that there was no value, the score was negative 19. Oh, 
Ouch. And so for us, when we got the insight, we thought, oh my goodness. So actually, if if we're having bad conversations between managers and employees, it's worse than having no conversations. And so you think, oh, okay, now, now it really, this goes back to, I think what Google did with Project Oxygen was to show that small increases in manager quality have a disproportionate impact on employee retention engagement. And so that just has reinforced my view that people leaders are really an important link in the employee engagement and retention story. And And it's good conversations about things that matter to people. Yeah. And how using analytics, you know, can really, really show those discrepancies. Um, You know, those numbers, those were huge jumps. Uh, Yeah. And for me, what was really encouraging was when we started sharing the data with executives, because when you first started the program, I said, I do not want to make it mandatory because I need a control group. I need a group that's not doing it. And I need the group that is doing it so I can compare the two groups. And this is hard, I think, for HR professionals to not just make every, if it's such a good idea, everybody should do it, (laughs) but you can't apply the scientific method if everybody's doing it and they're forced to do it. Yeah. We were able to look at the people who were doing it compared to the people who weren't doing it and analyze the differences. And over time, I was able to show to executives the meaningful change in employee engagement and retention that came from it. And they were the ones who made it mandatory. I never made it mandatory. They would say in their organizations, I've seen the data. We will drive it through the organization. Um, So for me, that was this amazing insight in my career yeah. was, oh my God, for once I have executives pushing HR programs, <laughs> not me. And I think that's what happens when you can prove it. Yeah, uh, absolutely. They're rational human beings and they, they live based on evidence and data. And if you can prove it, then work is much easier. Absolutely. Well, Kim, this has been such a great conversation. I am so excited to share this with our audience members. You have such great insight and just a refreshing way of looking at work. Uh, But before we part, is there anything that you would like to add or think that we missed from the conversation? No, I think we've covered everything. So I really appreciate your great great questions and the opportunity to speak with you today. Yeah. So if people want to get in touch, what's the best way to do so? Um, Probably either through LinkedIn. I'm Mm -hmm. reasonably good. I might be a week or two behind, but send me a request (laughs) on LinkedIn with a note, please. That helps Uh, because I do get a lot of just random people asking to connect. So a note helps, or you can send me an email through probably my Mach 49 email, which is kim.chomignon at mach49.com. Thank you so much. If you or anyone you know is like Kim who is trying to make the workplace better for people, email me, lindsay at staffgeek.com. Thank you for listening to Staff Geek's People Analytics Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay Patton, and I'm always looking to interview leaders who put people first. If you or someone you know lead with a people-first mindset, please email me at lindsay at staffgeek.com. That's L-I-N-D-S-A-Y at staffgeek.com. If you want to take things a step deeper and understand your organization's true culture DNA, I encourage you to take Staff Geek's free culture assessment. 
Just head to staffgeek.com and click the button that says free culture assessment. Thanks again for listening. 